0: Welcome to the Auckland Bioengineering
1: Institute podcast. Hello and thanks for listening. This is the first episode of our new podcast talking about the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. The Institute is uh, quite well known and well regarded internationally, but uh, not many people in New Zealand are aware of who we are and what we do. So I'm just going to give you a a quick background. And uh, with me today are two special guests. Would you like to introduce yourselves?
2: I'm Peter Hunter, I'm the director of the Auckland Bioengineering Institute, or ABI, as we call it.
0: I'm Marin Tafai, deputy director of the ABI.
1: Great, so why don't you give us a bit of a background about the institute and how it came about?
2: Um, so the ABI really started as a research group between the Department of Engineering Science in the School of Engineering many, many years ago, and the Physiology Department in the Medical School. And that was a collaboration between Bruce Smale and the physiology department and me in the engineering science department and we were working on cardiac um, modeling the heart and trying to understand various diseases of the heart using engineering techniques and developing both models and instrumentation to um, be able to understand the mechanics and the electrophysiology of the heart um, for eventually, clinical applications. And one of the early goals in that work was to couple it with the work that was being done in Oxford by Dennis Noble on the iron channels in the heart. So the electrical activity of the heart is supported by these tiny little proteins in cardiac cell membranes which conduct current across the cell membrane. And they give rise to the electrical activation wave that spreads around the heart initiating the contraction that then pumps blood. So a lot of the work that was going on at the time, this is 30 years ago, was really trying to understand what those channels were in the cell membranes, how they supported the action potential in the heart, and then how that could go wrong in certain diseases which would cause arrhythmias leading, for example, to sudden cardiac death. And our contribution to that was to really say well if you if you know enough about those individual channels how can you put them into the context of a whole heart and use the properties of the tissue combined with the properties of the of these proteins at the membrane cell level to get a better understanding of how the whole heart functions rather than just those
0: individual cells
1: and so Maren how did you come to join the institute
0: so I was a PhD student uh, in the predecessor to the ABI, just the, the Bioengineering Institute, before it became a large-scale research institute, and after PhD um, stayed on as a, as a research fellow, um, and then onwards with ABI, so that's uh, since 2001. Uh, my research is in the respiratory system, uh, so similar to what Peter has described for the heart. Um, developing multi-scale models of lung structure and function um, from cell through to whole organ. Um, So in the case of the lung, um, being able to model structure of airway and vascular trees from medical imaging, um, so creating patient-specific models, uh, models for soft tissue mechanics, um, again with a link through to patient-specific imaging, um, and down to the, the cellular function in the airway or blood vessel wall, so controlling um, contraction of smooth muscle uh, in the airways or in the blood vessels, which then has a flow-on effect to airflow distribution and blood flow distribution, and ultimately uh, gas exchange.
1: And how did things progress from that stage to where we are now?
2: So I think as, as we develop the models of the heart and then Merrin's work on the lung. We began to realise that this the approach we were taking was fairly general and could be applied to any organ in the body, and we were noticed by a International Union of Physiological Sciences (IUPS), which is a which is the umbrella body of the physiology societies, and the president of IUPS at the time, Ivan Weibel was interested in, in our approach and then asked me to form what became the Physiome Committee of the of IUPS. So what they wanted to do was to, the world of physiology could see there was a need to be able to couple a lot of the molecular biology that was going on the t- on at the time into larger scale physiological systems. And they were looking for ways of doing that and they could see that what we were doing these engineering approaches was had the potential to link molecular biology to larger scale physiology and and, and particularly then to medicine. So they asked me to form this committee, which an international physiome committee, which I did. Um, and that was where we really started to think in a much bigger sense about where could this go long term if we could develop the infrastructure for being able to understand cells and tissues in the context of molecular events but bring them to the level of a whole organ or organ system. And one of the early areas that we focused on was the notion of developing standards because I think in our work both in the heart and the lungs we realized that things get complicated very very quickly so we needed to be able to make sure that the models we developed were able to be verified that they were correct and accurate and didn't contain various types of mistake which is so easy to do when you have a very complex model. So we began the development of a range of standards, the first one being CellML and that was a markup, what's called a markup language which is like the HTML that's used to support standards in the World Wide Web. So we developed something called CELML, um, and Paul Nielsen in the ABI was particularly involved in the early days of getting this going, where we could then ensure that models were developed and according to standards that could be machine tested to make sure that they were not violating basic um, units, for example, or or laws of physics. And so that led us to develop a framework for being able to cope with any type of cellular model um, be able to code it up in these standards framework, we created a repository of models, and then we developed, began to develop software that people could use, open source, freely available software that people could use to code up models of any aspect of biology into these um, standard forms. And I think an important part of that was the idea also that because things were so complex, you needed to be able to develop modules, so you could deal with one group could be developing a model of a particular process, another group could be developing a completely different process, but then when you wanted to couple those together to build something that was more than each of them could do on their own, you needed the ability through these standards frameworks to be able to create the concept of imports or be able to build up complexity by defining modules that could be imported into a more complex model. that then led to what we now have, which is a repository of um, nearly a 1,000 models from people all over the world dealing with all aspects of biological function.
1: So the Institute was officially established in Auckland in 2001, and uh, even from the the early days, you already had a lot of strong international collaboration. But uh, how did you build the research network here in New Zealand?
2: So I think we recognised quite some time ago that the work we were doing was internationally becoming quite well known but it was not really relating strongly to what was happening in New Zealand and so we I decided that we needed to really make sure that we were if we were going to be sustainable long term as a research group and then an institute we needed to make sure that we were connected with other researchers in New Zealand in particular and to be able to show the government that what we were doing was relevant for healthcare and and the economy in New Zealand. So I teamed up with Diana Su, who at the time was working with industrial research labs for what became Callaghan Innovation. And she and I formed, because we'd been working together on various projects, we decided we would form a consortium for medical device technologies which would encompass the whole of New Zealand and bring the country together around medical devices or related technologies. It didn't have much money, but it was an intent to just get people talking, forming networks, and thinking how we could work together within New Zealand more effectively. Um, so that was called CMDT, and Di and I got that going. And then we realized that if we were going to really make progress in the area of medical devices, we needed to form a research collaboration that was properly funded and the opportunity came up to make a bid for one of the New Zealand's centres of research excellence. Um, I'd been involved in another one, but um, the Morris Hawkins Centre. And then I realised that for bioengineering and for medical device technologies in particular, we should really launch a bid for a medical technologies centre of research excellence, which we call the MedTech Core. Core being centre of research excellence, and that MedTech Core was funded, and that really began a journey about six years ago that helped us connect very strongly with industry in New Zealand, and led to a wide variety of outcomes, including a doctoral training program and various spin-out companies. Um, And I was the initial director of the Medtech Corps, but um, halfway through the first period I stepped down and Marin took over as the
0: leader of the Corps. So we're now um, in the process of um, revising our vision for the Corps. Um, as we prepare for a a rebid. So Centres of Research Excellence have been funded on six yearly cycles. Uh, Now that will be changing to eight years of funding Uh, and the uh, timeframe for putting in um, a new bid to be a a new core um, is at the end of this year. Um, So we're doing a lot of preparation work now for that. Um, So our core involves five partner universities and Callaghan Innovation. Um, Cores are supposed to be collaborative, supposed to be um, creating national networks of excellence um, and that's certainly something that we've done uh, with the initial phase of the core. Um, For us we're, we're really seen as a very collaborative core. Um, collaboration is at the heart of all of the the research projects um, that are being undertaken in the core. So we have um, AUT, University of Auckland, Victoria University of Wellington, um, Otago and Canterbury um, Universities and Callaghan Innovation um, all involved. um, A mixture of clinicians, engineers, computer scientists, mathematicians, uh, design, manufacturing um, and translational expertise Um, and we bring those together into uh, teams that are focused on specific um, physiological or clinical problems uh, and have had success with um, quite a number of spin-out companies um, that have been established on the back of core research. Um, So going forward uh, we know that we've been very successful as a new core, but we need to look uh, for how can we scale this and sustain it um, beyond the term of any additional core funding. So how can we sustain this activity in MedTech for New Zealand? So,
2: so one of the major motivations in developing the concept of uh, the ABI becoming an incubator for spin-out companies. Was partly to link to the new, you know, benefit the New Zealand economy in terms of creating companies. But it was also an awareness that if we were training lots of PhD students, we also needed to be putting effort into creating job opportunities for highly trained bioengineers. And the MedTech Corps' philosophy of encouraging the development of spin out companies has now led to, um, and the ABI. I mean, both Medtech and ABI have now together spun out about 17 companies over seven years. and those companies are employing over 200 people. and that to us or to me that's a very satisfying outcome because we have 100 PhD students in the ABI. and so knowing that they have lots of opportunities for contributing to New Zealand's economic growth and, and health outcomes through these, by taking up jobs in these spin-out companies is a, is a very good way for the ABI to justify its level of activity at the graduate uh, level.
0: The Medtech Corps established um, a unique doctoral training programme, Unique for New Zealand. Um, so our postgraduate students, our PhD students um, in New Zealand um, are not required to do coursework. Um, but that means that we had a lot of students coming to us who didn't have um, a well-rounded background for getting into bioengineering research. So the doctoral training program um, exposes them to to bioengineering and and clinical clinical environment, instrumentation, computational physiology, so pretty sort of broad um, coverage Uh, of areas that could either be directly important for their research, their PhD research, or at least give them a good perspective um, of the field and um, understanding how to communicate with others who might be uh, working in slightly different areas in bioengineering. Um, So the DTP is a a number of um, intensive modules um, that students undertake usually in the first six months um, of their research, brings together students from across the country, so it's creating their own um, sort of student-based network, um, which are, students have found really valuable, and it also gets them into the other universities um, that are part of the course, so they can see what's going on elsewhere in New Zealand. Um, so in ABI, we have uh, about 100 students, both Masters and PhD, um, from with a large number of them um, International students um, from 33 different countries.
1: And how is all of this amazing research funded?
2: So, we have always had the philosophy that we <coughs> wanted to tap into three sources of funding to support the ABI. One was student training, so, we get money from the government to essentially supervise these students who are going to become, um, who are then going to be employed by medtech or bioengineering related companies. And the second source is public good funding, so there's various sources of funding from the Blue Skies end, which is the Marston Fund, through to the clinical, um, clinically focused end, which is the Health Research Council, through to more industry facing funds administered by the Ministry for Business Innovation and Employment, MB. Um, so we We tap into all of those public good sources, but we also have another third source of funding, so the first is students, second public good science. And, And by the way, I should say that the public good science also now includes substantial funding from international sources, such as for a while we were getting quite a lot of funding from Europe, now it's more from the US in particular, the National Institutes of Health in the US. But the third major source of funding has been, in recent years, has been philanthropic funding. And this has been greatly assisted by um, having somebody in the Institute, Nicole, who's driving the, who's really promoting the ABI to potential donors. And this has become an extremely important part of our operation because those donors, are very varied, they have very different interests and outcomes from their funding, but they are particularly helping to support a number of our younger emerging researchers who it's very, very hard to get going as a, as a research leader, um, and because funding in New Zealand is extremely competitive for, for basic science funding in particular. So the, the philanthropic money has really allowed quite a number of our younger emerging researchers to have a period of four years or so where they get funding for their own salary plus funding for PhD students to really get themselves established and begin to find out how to support themselves long term through applying for for research funding from public good agencies and getting students on board and so on. And so philanthropy has been a, a very, very important part of the growth of the API. And then I, I guess the final part of our income is is industry contracts, so our spin-out companies um, will sometimes contract work back to us once they themselves become vi- you know, vi- financially viable. I want to be able to fund work in the ABI to help them grow as companies. So that's, it's a relatively small part of our total income, but it's an important part of um, our connection with industry.
1: And what are the spin-out companies that have been most successful?
2: Probably the best known one is Soul Machines. So that's work that came out of the ABI and the work of Mark Sagar, um, who initially did his PhD here and then came back and as a research scientist and then after a long period with Weta um, and then established the spin-out company called Soul Machines, which is developing avatars and... Um, it's using very realistic animation of the human face in particular and increasingly now the whole body to but with a model of the brain behind it which can be a responsive avatar so it can there's a whole lot of applications where it's acting um, both as a, a speaking head but also as a responsive head that can respond to questions with a with a um, intelligent um a database of knowledge and the ability to actually reason um, behind that talking head, um, and then other companies, a number of them have been in the instrumentation area, so quite often combining instrumentation and modelling. So we work across companies in the in the musculoskeletal space, in the um, uh, GI tract space. So there's a group in the ABI led by Leo Ching, who's a company that is helping to interpret various pathologies of the stomach, and that's again a company that's dealing both with the modelling of the stomach and instrumentation that they've developed to um, be able to gather the data that they need for the models to interpret, diagnostically interpret pathologies of the stomach. And I think it's a, it's worth making the point that the. The ABI has always been built on these three legs of a stall, one of the legs being mathematical modelling and, and computational physiology. The second being the development of instrumentation, sometimes to make measurements of the properties of tissues that you want to put into the models, and that led to the medtech side of things. But the third part of it is the experimental work. So the you need new instruments to make new types of observation and measurement. You need to do the experiments but you then need to be able to interpret complex data with mathematical models so those three modeling instrumentation and experiment are really the core of the ABI so a number of our spin-out companies have got have really reflect that as well for example the the company involved in the stomach is doing experiments modeling the stomach and developing new instrumentation and medical devices for recording data that can be interpreted with the models, and that applies across a number of the companies that we've spun out.
1: The Institute is quite well known, well regarded internationally, isn't it? You have a lot of international collaborations.
0: Well, being a a small country uh, with (laughs) some limited resources, and in particular, uh, you know, limited limited number of, of patients with certain pathologies, for example. So, you know, access to, to large amounts of data is pretty restricted in New Zealand. So, um, you know, for that and a number of reasons, um, we have to look internationally um, for collaborations. Um, but, of course, also to be doing world-leading research, you need to be um, collaborating with, with others around the world. Um, So all of our research groups um, have very strong international collaborations with um, very good uh, people overseas. Um, And so, of course, that also helps to raise the profile of all of our uh, researchers here at ABI. Um, So in the respiratory group, for me, um, it was really essential to be going overseas to access resources that weren't available in New Zealand. So to to be able to to do the modelling work that I do um, needed to be able to to work with people who um, who had large databases of of imaging um, and have equipment um, that we don't have access to in New Zealand as well. Yeah. So that also then gives us an opportunity to tap into international funding, which Peter is, has mentioned.
1: So you have a lot of links to the international research community. Uh, What about your links to the clinical industry here in New Zealand?
2: So most of our research groups will have strong clinical collaborations involving clinicians from the hospital or from the medical school, and we see that as a really important part of making sure that we're tackling problems of medical significance, but also it's very motivating I think for a lot of the research students to have that strong clinical link and it often, in, in some cases, it's led to very interesting commercial opportunities as well that are, are partly driven by the clinical um, by the clinicians involved. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the work of Greg O'Grady with the GI, the, the, the digestive system <laughs> group here, which is sp- spinning out companies in the medtech space, but driven by a, someone who's, who's a surgeon, a GI surgeon and really knows the requirements for improving aspects of surgery in the, um, in that area. Another, another example would be we have a clinician, Paul Monk, who's part of the orthopaedic or the musculoskeletal group in the ABI. So again, having someone who's got one foot in the clinical <coughs> world in orthopaedic surgery and another foot in the research environment of the ABI is a very strong it's an b- extremely valuable way of making sure that the research that's being done is relevant to medical outcomes and it's very motivating for the students.
1: So I imagine as directors of the Institute and the MedTech Corps you are very busy. Um, do you still have time to pursue your own research projects?
0: I try to find time <laughs> to work on that. So I have a number of PhD students and i um, fortunate to work with a good team of um, Colleagues uh, in the respiratory area in ABI who really managed to keep the research going. Um, so, I mean, that's where my passion really lies is in that research. I don't want to, you know, to not be doing it, um, but it's always a balancing act.
2: It's the same for me. I think my, my real, my primary passion is research. Um, being director of, of a research institute is, in a sense, secondary to being primarily interested in in doing research myself, so I never want to lose that. Um, And the project that I'm involved in at the moment is an NIH funded project on mapping the autonomic nervous system in the body, so everyone knows about nerves in the brain obviously and the spinal cord, but in fact the whole body is permeated with neurons um, that control or respond to signals from all the organs in the body and it's called the autonomic nervous system. Um, Because it acts autonomously, you're not voluntarily controlling that. So we have a project funded by the NIH which is taking data from a large number of experimental groups in the US and bringing it into the the physiome-style models that we've developed to, to map these neural pathways into the various organs and to understand how the neural Control occurring through the autonomic nervous system impacts on the function of those organs.
1: Well, thank you, Peter and Maren, for joining me today, and thanks to everyone that's listening as well. If you'd like to find out more, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Auckland Bioengineering Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. Uh, So, yeah, thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode.
0: To find out more, visit our website, www.abi.auckland.ac.nz.